History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 369th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be talking about Harper's Ferry. This has a very important place in American history, and it has a lot of haunts to go with it. And as you and I have found, as we've been doing episodes that center on West Virginia and the Appalachian Mountains, there's a lot of spirit and mystique to them especially to the Appalachian Trail. I had a friend who started off trying to hike that, and eventually she had to give up after a a brief bit of time. I think she got sick or something while she was doing it. But maybe that's one of the reasons why people want to do the Appalachian Trail. It's not just a physical type of thing for them. It's very much a spiritual one, too. Yeah, it's not just a physical challenge. It's a spiritual walk. Yeah, definitely. And I'm thinking maybe that's because it has that essence to these mountains for some reason. Before we get into sharing that with you guys, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Delena, Tom, Jacob, Elizabeth, Danielle, Amy, and Andrea has joined us in the Spooktacular crew. <laughs> We're so happy to have everyone join us, but thank you, Andrea. We've been mentioning you. You've been a supporter of HGB for so long, and we're so happy to have you in the crew now. And we wanted to thank you for sending the Christmas card with the nice letter in there, letting oh us know goodness. that you are alive and out there. <laughs> yes. And she sent a couple of masks along, which have embroidery on them that's very similar to Coco. Yeah. I love Day them. of the Dead. So every time we put them on, we think of Coco. And now, this moment, Noddy. The moment in oddity was suggested by Darren Cook. So drinking tea in our modern age is considered pretty normal. As a matter of fact, tea time is a way of life in Britain. But there was once a time that tea drinking was looked down upon. Pamphlets were delivered to homes in the early 1800s, warning against the waste of time and money that tea drinking was for women. One read, We never were used to tea and would not choose that our little girl should get a notion of any such thing. The hankering after a drop of tea keeps many poor all their lives so I would not have any things in the cabin which would put us in mind of it. The attitude was that poor Irish women might as well be chugging from a bottle of whiskey when they were sipping tea from a cup. In England, tea was thought to ruin diets and foster thoughts of revolution. Women were banned from coffee and tea houses throughout Europe. The thought that drinking tea could be controversial and lead poor women down the road of laziness and rebellion certainly is odd. the lights. The party's just getting started. And now, this month in history.
month of January on the 13th in 1968, Johnny Cash performed at Folsom Prison. In 1956, Cash had written Folsom Prison Blues, which was written from the point of view of an inmate. But he himself had never done time in Folsom Prison, and he'd only been in jail to sleep off a drunk. Cash had been a successful songwriter and performer, making his way to legendary status when he became his own roadblock. By 1968, Cash was depressed as his music career was in decline and drugs and alcohol had taken their toll on him. He had performed at Folsom Prison in 1966, but this visit would be very special as Cash planned to record the concert that he performed there. The inmates loved Cash and energized his playing. The record that came from the live performance was a huge hit, and Cash's career skyrocketed. He became the man in black after this as he started wearing his trademark dark clothing as a symbol of the beaten down man and prisoner. He crusaded for the imprisoned man for the rest of his life. Harper's Ferry is located in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia at the junction of the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers. The town is best known for its place in history as the site of John Brown's armed raid of the U.S. military arsenal there before the Civil War. This would ignite a spark that eventually ended slavery, which is precisely what Brown wanted. This may be the reason his spirit is still seen at Harper's Ferry. There is more than just Brown's spirit here, though. This is West Virginia, a state we have always believed honed supernatural energy and its strategic location with the rivers more than likely feeds this energy even more. Join us as we explore the history and haunts of Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry was a very strategic location in early America, particularly because of its spot at the conjunction of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers, as Kelly mentioned. The first known Native Americans to be in the area were the Tuscarora people. With the large rivers, a ferry was needed to help commerce between the states of what was Virginia at the time and Maryland. And since this is named Harper's Ferry, you probably think that someone named Harper was the man to do this. Isn't that what you would think, Kelly? I would make that assumption, but you know what they say when you assume. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you would be wrong. This area that was known as the Point was owned by Lord Fairfax, who was a Scottish peer. Do you know what a peer is? I do not. I didn't either. I had to look it up. Apparently, it's just another one of those royal titles. Just another one of those royal titles. I'm not a duke or king or queen or prince or princess. I'm actually a peer, which is so weird because for us, when we use the term peer, it's just a friend. Someone on the same level as you. Yeah. This guy clearly was not on the same level with people. He owned a big chunk of Virginia and worked some 30 farms there with slave labor. A squatter came along named Peter Stevens, and he set the ferry up in 1733. He ran that for 14 years until Robert Harper came through and saw how much wasted potential the ferry had. He paid Stevens for his squatting rights and Harper was off and running. So it wasn't named for the man who actually started it. It was named for the man who bought it later and improved upon it. Gotcha. But it was named for the man. It was, (laughs) but not for the original man. Let me put it that way. In 1761, Harper purchased 126 acres from Lord Fairfax and legally set up the ferry, and the Virginia General Assembly called the town Shenandoah Falls at Mr. Harper's Ferry. It's a bit of a mouthful, so you can see why they shortened it down to just Harper's Ferry. Yeah, it's a little bit of a long name. (laughs) 
And I wanted to specifically word that as legally set it up because Stevens had just been running this ferry of his own accord. Nobody had told him he could do that. But Harper decided that he wanted to set this all up the right way, make sure they couldn't shut him down, expand, do that kind of thing. So basically, he started paying taxes. Yeah, made it official. The area was beautiful. And when Thomas Jefferson visited, he proclaimed that the view was worth a voyage across the Atlantic. George Washington would later establish the site as a military location because of its strategic importance. He had a United States armory and arsenal built there. The armory was completed in 1799 and was one of only two in America at the time. Lewis and Clark would supply their expedition from this armory. Most weapons made in the U.S. came from here, and by the time of the Civil War, it was cranking out 600,000 muskets, pistols, and rifles. That's a lot, especially if you think back at the time. That's all manual labor. Absolutely. This armory and the town of Harper's Ferry itself would be burned into the history of America when an abolitionist named John Brown raided the place. John Brown was born in Connecticut in 1800 to a Calvinist family who were anti-slavery. The family moved to Ohio and that was where John was raised. He married a woman named Dianth Lusk and settled in Pennsylvania where they had seven children. Oh, good Lord. You just wait, Kelly. It gets even better. I mean, my mom's one of six, so I get it, but that's well, a you, lot of kids. You popped out a couple, so you know what it's like to pop out <laughs> two, a bunch. Two is enough for me. Yeah. He ran several businesses and opened a post office. His main business was a tannery, and a secret room there became part of the Underground Railroad. Brown went from doing well to a string of bad luck. His wife, Dianth, died during childbirth. His logging business ran out of wood, and the tannery failed. He had 20 lawsuits filed against him and a variety of his failed business dealings, and he eventually declared bankruptcy in his early 40s. He married a 16-year-old girl named Mary May, and they had 13 children. Oh, my Lord. And he's already got seven. Oh, my. (laughs) I told you it got better. They moved to Ohio to start a new life because Brown was finding it very difficult to feed 20 children. Yeah, I would imagine so. One day, he heard about an abolitionist meeting in Cleveland, and he decided to attend out of curiosity because he had always been anti-slavery. He left that meeting inspired and emboldened. He told anyone who would listen that he was dedicating his life to bringing down the institution of slavery. Brown's first major moves in this new abolitionist path took him to Kansas, and he brought five of his sons with him. The state was in play between abolitionists and slaveholders. Lawrence was an abolitionist town, and it was raided by some pro-slavery men on May 21, 1856. Brown and his sons were set on revenge, and they attacked a group of cabins along Potawatomi Creek, killing five men. This launched a series of skirmishes, and eventually one of Brown's sons was killed. Brown formulated many plans, and one thing he always believed would happen was that slaves would rise up and join him. By 1859, he had worked out funding from some wealthy abolitionists that were dubbed the Secret Six, and he had a small army of 20 men that included three of his sons and several free black men. The group rented a Maryland farm and hatched a plan to carry out an attack on Harper's Ferry. Shortly before midnight on October 16, 1859, Brown took his men down the road to Harper's Ferry. When they got to the railway station, a free man of color named Haywood Shepard, who was the baggage master, approached them and told them to stop. He was shot and killed. There were several people in the area that the band of men took hostage, and these included some slaves. Brown and his men seized several buildings, including the arsenal. Then they waited for the slaves to rise up. This was the thing Brown had always expected to happen. He just knew that their numbers would swell by the hundreds. That uprising did not happen. Word of the raid spread, and soon Brown and his men were surrounded. 
The town people drove the raiders back to a fire hall that was dubbed Brown's Fort, and they killed Dangerfield Newby, a free black man with Brown. Dangerfield was the son of his mother's master, so clearly he started out as a product of rape. He eventually married and had seven children. When his father took the family to Ohio, he was freed because that was a free state, but his wife and children couldn't come with him because they were still slaves. And one of the stories that I read is that he had worked really hard so that he could buy their freedom, and then when he went back to get them, their master was like, oh no, it's going to be even more than that. So it was kind of raising the price. Jerk. So he was really angry and disillusioned. So you can imagine why he found himself among John Brown's small army here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Dangerfield and what happened to him later. It's very awful what happens to him. On October 18th, Colonel Robert E. Lee and Lieutenant J.E.B. Stewart led a troop of Marines into Harper's Ferry, and they joined the civilians in the attack on Brown, who was wounded and captured. Two of his sons were killed, as well as 10 of the other men with him. The state of Virginia tried Brown for treason and murder, and he was found guilty on November 2nd. He was sentenced to death by hanging, and this took place on December 2nd, 1859. He climbed the 13 steps of the gallows with pride. Do they always have 13 steps? I'm beginning to think that's the case, because every time we read one of these stories, it's like climbing the 13 steps. Wow. And then at the old jail there in Charleston, it was 13 steps down. Right, and... (laughs) everybody would jump over the 13th except me. (laughs) So it makes you wonder, since they were so superstitious, how many of them would try to miss one of the steps while they went up to the gallows? Yeah, possibly. He had made his case during the trial, using the process to spread his message. Some thought he was a hero. Others thought he was a criminal. And some even thought he was a madman. One thing he was for sure was prophetic. He passed a note to the guard that read, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. And soon, the Civil War would start with many calling this raid the first shot fired. Harper's Ferry would be a prized spot during the Civil War. Both the North and South would trade off control of it during various times. Several places in town have connections to the war, and these locations seem to ooze spiritual activity. John Brown is still strongly connected to this place of his final stand. One story dates back to 1974. Shirley Doherty was running a restaurant in town when a group of visitors came inside. As they settled in, they commented to her that the John Brown reenactor was amazing. Shirley frowned with confusion and asked what reenactor they were talking about. They told her that this was a man down by Brown's Fort who was a dead ringer for John Brown. They had seen his picture, and this man was tall with a shock of white hair and period clothing who had a wild look in his eyes. Shirley started hearing similar stories from other tourists, so many that she thought perhaps the National Park Service had hired an actor. The craziest part of the story was that people took their pictures with this man. When they got the film developed, the man was not in the pictures. Whoa. Another one of the craziest (laughs) stories I've ever heard. That's pretty cool. And even the National Park Service talks about it. So it's not like outlandish. Right. And for people who are younger that are listening, before you had your camera phones, (laughs) you actually had this thing called film and you wouldn't know what you captured on it till you got home and sent it in for developing and got the pictures back. This is correct. (laughs) So you can only imagine that they were like, wait a minute, wasn't this the place where that guy, the reenactor was and we were standing there smiling with him? That's crazy. And I would love to see some of these pictures because you can imagine like a husband <laughs> and a wife space on either side. <laughs> it's like, look, we have our arms around something. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's too funny. But he was corporal and obviously intelligent that he could stop and pose for a picture. Wow. I just craziest thing I've ever heard. 
Brown also is said to regularly appear taking a nightly walk with a dog, and as they approach the engine house, they both disappear into a wall. This could be residual, as many claim that Brown took this walk many times in life as he surveyed the lay of the land and planned his attack. And Kelly, for people who don't know, we said that they pushed Brown and his men back to a fire hall. It was a firehouse, basically. And so when we're talking about an engine room or an engine house, same kind of deal. So basically, Brown's fort was a fire station. Sometime later, a man named Brad Matthews claimed to be walking past Brown's fort at night on the anniversary of the raid. He came face to face with several men carrying muskets who started to interrogate him. The man ran away and he heard gunfire behind him. Makes one wonder if those bullets were as corporal as the men. Park employees and visitors have both claimed to see the apparition of Dangerfield newbie walking around Hog Alley. He was killed by a six-inch spike fired from a rifle that hit him in the throat. And just to explain that, they had a lot of trouble with ammunition there. I guess they didn't have very good ammunition stores. So people would put anything that they could find into their rifles to fire. Dang. The reason Dangerfield might be in this place called Hog Alley is because his body was mutilated with his limbs being cut off and everything was thrown to the hogs. When his apparition is seen, he's wearing baggy trousers and a slouched hat and has a scar across his throat. But it is not just spirits connected to John Brown's raid that are here. There are many more spirits and ghost stories here. Today, Harper's Ferry National Historical Park stretches into three states, covers 4,000 acres, and includes the historic town of Harper's Ferry. This was established by Congress in 1963 after being a national monument since 1944. The main points of interest in the park are Jefferson Rock, John Brown's Fort, Loudoun Heights, I think is how you say that, Maryland Heights, and The Point. The Point overlooked the B&O Railroad Bridge, which was destroyed and replaced nine times during the Civil War. Can you imagine rebuilding a bridge nine times? Good grief, no. The flood of 1936 destroyed it for good. Any buildings located here were burned by the Union in 1862, so Confederates couldn't use them as cover for sharpshooters. Jefferson Rock is named for Thomas Jefferson, who stood upon the shale in 1783 and marveled at the view. And earlier, Kelly, you'd mentioned that he'd said that that was worth a trip across the Atlantic. Shale's a really good place to find snakes in many states. <laughs> oh, fabulous. That's a <laughs> fabulous. little fun fact. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really loose rock, basically oh. on a mountainside. I mean, it just looks shredded. It looks like a whole bunch of just random rock were just thrown in layers and layers and layers. And so the snakes love it. Well, that makes sense because the way this was originally set up when Thomas Jefferson would have been there is this were stacks of shale on top of each other. But you can imagine over time that this became very unstable. So now when you go to see Jefferson Rock, they have it up on, I think it's just like these little small concrete blocks or pillars. Ah, uh, yeah. But you're not allowed to get on it anymore, of course. Yeah, that would make sense because otherwise it would just constantly slide down. Loudoun Heights was seized by Confederate forces during the Battle of Harper's Ferry. The Confederate forces hauled four cannons up that mountain. Can you imagine hauling four cannons up? No, basically my jaw just dropped. That's crazy. And that the north been so difficult. Yeah, the north is watching them and going, "Oh, they're never going to be able to get any firepower up there." And they did and bombarded them really well. <laughs> Impressive. Eventually, though, the Union would reoccupy Harper's Ferry. And like I said earlier, this went back and forth. When you look through the history for like three years, it was like, now the Union's taken over. Now the Confederates have taken over. Now the Union's back again. So, Kelly, let's go ahead and talk about some of the other haunted areas here. Will do. First one up is Camp Hill. Camp Hill is found on High Street. The former military encampment was founded in 1798, shortly after the Revolutionary War. 
General Pinckney was stationed here with his troops when France was threatening to attack. They never saw any action, but that didn't prevent them from experiencing a lot of death. Cholera swept through the camp and killed many men. Their bodies were buried on the west bank of Camp Hill. Because there was not much action here, General Pinckney kept his men entertained and fit by running drills with them. The troops would run up and down the hill as a fife and drum played. So it is not surprising that the haunt attributed to this location is said to be a phantom army and people claim to hear the sound of drums beating and a fife playing. The disembodied sounds of marching feet are also heard. Phantom army, you never want to see something like that coming down the road at you. Definitely not. (laughs) Next, we have St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church. This is located at 110 Church Street and dates back to 1833. The neo-Gothic structure sits up on the heights of Harper's Ferry and was the only church in the town to not be destroyed during the Civil War. This is a small but beautiful church built from gray stone with a red sandstone trim around the windows and archways. The grand spire sits atop its tower. The windows are made from colored glass, and the interior is one large room that serves as a sanctuary. Father Michael Costello was a young priest shepherding the flock here when the Civil War broke out. He served from 1857 to 1867. When the war started, his homeland of Ireland offered to bring him back home, but he would not leave his church. The church was spared during the war because Father Costello flew a Union Jack flag atop St. Peter's to express neutrality. He protected church property and was nicknamed the Doctor of Souls. He made it through the war, but died two years after it from an illness at the age of 33. Can't imagine making it through the Civil War and then you die of just an illness. Father Costello's ghost has been seen by several people walking around inside and outside of the church he loved. During the war, the church served as a hospital. A young wounded soldier laid out on the lawn waiting for a doctor to see him. He was losing blood fast and thus fading fast. He was carried inside the church and he whispered his last words. Thank God I am saved. His apparition is seen on the stairs occasionally and there are other people who claim to hear his disembodied voice whispering his last words again. Next, we have the Harper House, and this is known today as the Harper Museum. It's located at 102 Public Way. This is the oldest house in Harper's Ferry. It was built in the late 1700s by Robert and Rachel Harper, for whom the town was named. The ferry business was good money, but England was charging them huge taxes. So Rachel came up with this idea that she would take a little bit of money off the top, hide it in some jars, and then bury them so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on that money. Smart thinking. I don't blame her. (laughs) Just didn't quite work out in the execution. (laughs) Well, here's what's going to happen. Rachel fell from a ladder in 1780 and her injuries were so severe that she died the next day. She must have been unconscious the whole time because she never told anyone where the money was buried. Oops. I'm surprised that she wouldn't have told her husband. Maybe she was just afraid if he knew and they took him aside and started questioning him, he'd tell them what they were doing. I don't know. Loose lips sink ships. Well, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Some people believe it is in the garden across from the house. I don't know if they've ever tried digging over there for the buried treasure. Perhaps for this reason, her spirit is still seen at the house, and many times she's looking out in the direction of the garden. And next we have the train tracks by the U.S. Armory. There are some old railroad tracks by the U.S. Armory at 118 through 198 Potomac Street, and they have a crazy ghost story connected to them. Engineers claim to see some kind of anomaly coming down the tracks. They describe it as a huge ball of flame passing down those tracks. The scream of train wheels are heard following behind it. There was a woman who was known as Jenny who lived in a tiny shack near the train tracks and the river. She would walk the river looking for driftwood for her fire. One night, the hem of her dress caught fire and she took off running down the train tracks yelling for help. 
she ended up in the path of the train. Is this anomaly Jenny's spirit running engulfed in flames? Is this a residual haunting playing the scene over and over again? And speaking of the armory and fire, the Confederates burned it in 1861. Yeah, this story, I don't know all the specifics behind it because I read both that it was an elderly woman and that it was a young girl. So I just went with woman because I wasn't sure what her age was. I don't know if it's just a legend and people see this flaming ball and so they made a legend to go with it or if it's a true story that happened. I'm not sure. Next, we have a phantom named Jacob. Christopher Coleman tells the story of a phantom named Jacob in his book, Ghosts and Haunts of the Civil War. There's a building that housed a former tintype studio that was taken over by the Union during the war and used as a Confederate prison. One of the guards there was named Jacob. He'd met a local girl and left his post to have a late night tryst. His superior found out and punished the whole unit. I always think that's kind of a good idea. I know you parents like to do that where it's like, you know, neither kid wants to fess up. So you're like, well, you're both getting punished. Well, this is true. But it sounds like he knew exactly. He did. But he's like, I'm going to make everybody pay for it. So as is the case, I think he probably was looking for a little bit of group retribution. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A little group peer pressure. And it came, but it came at a really high cost. Afterward, Jacob's troop decided to teach him a lesson and they bound and gagged him. And they started beating on him. So he ended up choking to death and the soldiers dragged his body away and buried it in secret to cover their crime. This is probably why Jacob is an unrest. People say that they hear the sound of a body being dragged down the stairs in the building. And they also hear the sounds of gagging and someone being beaten. I have no idea what building this is. This author Coleman did not specify. He just said it was a former tent type studio. So I don't know which building that would be in the city. And now on to Maryland Heights Trail. The North and South fought over the strategic location of Harper's Ferry heartily, and each side traded control of it through the war. The Maryland Heights Trail is a steep mountain trail that winds nearly 6.5 miles. This is an area where hundreds of soldiers battled. Several encampments were set up in the mountains, and people who walk here at night claim to see ghostly firelights dotting the hills. Fun fact, before there were billboards on highways, advertisements were painted on the sides of brick buildings, as many of us already know, and stone cliffs. Maryland Heights is one of those places with an ad painted on the side made from milk and whitewash. It reads, Menon's Borated Talcum Toilet Powder. Not sure what it's for, but toilet powder, I guess it's just a bathroom. I think it, it sounds like it would be cleaner, so maybe there's borax in it? Maybe. The ad was targeted for people traveling on the B&O Railroad. Now, a lot of people say this is unsightly because it's up in nature. It's on the side. They have tried to take it off of there in the past, like many, many years ago. But it's a piece of history. And it comes back through. So they've just decided to leave it there. And yeah, it is a piece of history. I mean, I love it. You know, I love it when we see a brick building that has the ads on the side of it. Absolutely. It's my favorite. I know a lot of our listeners are the same. So it doesn't bother me if they have this. I mean, if every stone cliff had something on it, then maybe, but. And it's not like it's graffiti or something of that nature. No, I mean, it was set to be an actual ad. This next story is the Phantom Drummer Boy. This is a bit of a tough one. So just brace yourselves for those of you who don't like to hear about bad things that happen to a child. As we know, drummers during the Civil War were usually young boys. There was one certain nine or 10 year old boy who found his Confederate regiment captured. Union soldiers took pity on him because they knew he would never survive the prison camp. They kept him in the townhouse that they were occupying. They first started off having him work like a servant for them, telling him to clean, polish their boots and do the laundry. 
Eventually, the soldiers started abusing the boy, and he would beg them to let him go home to his mother. One day, the soldiers were drunk, and when the boy started crying again, they were enraged and started passing him around to each other. And when I say passing, I think they were tossing him around to each other. And on one of those, the boy went flying through a window, so he fell to his death. The disembodied crying and begging of a child are heard in the area of this building, which we were not able to track down what building this would be. The story comes from the book Haunted West Virginia by Patty A. Wilson, and she just called it the townhouse and capitalized it. When I put that into a search for Harper's Ferry, I couldn't find anything other than townhouses for sale. So I'm not sure what building she was referencing. The next haunt, we don't know the location of either, but it is another story told in the Haunted West Virginia book. A woman ran a restaurant in town, and when she first moved in, she noticed a handprint on the wall. She tried to clean it off, but nothing could remove it. So she decided to paint over it. Imagine her surprise when the handprint came through the paint. She decided to ask the former owner about it, who had no further information. The woman felt like she had a ghost because she often felt like she was being watched. But the former owner didn't believe there was a ghost. The restaurant owner decided that her only option for dealing with the handprint was to cover it with a painting. The morning after she hung the picture, she found the painting on the ground. Now she had no doubt that there was a ghost in the building. She made peace with the ghost. She would put up the painting on the wall during the day and then take it down when she left for the night. Smart move, I'd say. Absolutely. Alyssa Leigh Vasseur told journalist Deborah Block, The whole town is haunted. People have seen things. You can probably ask anyone in town who's been living here or works here, and they've seen something. They can't deny it. I hear ghosts all the time. I've heard kids' voices and footsteps, so I know they are here. I say good morning to them. I was walking by one of the displays when the audio went on by itself. You have to push a button to turn it on. Then I realized I hadn't said good morning to the spirits, and as soon as I did, the sound stopped. (laughs) They're like, hello, where's your manners? Did you say good morning? Harper's Ferry has an important place in American history. This town has seen turmoil and war and survived. And while it has moved forward, there possibly could be remnants from the past still holding on in the afterlife. Are these locations in Harper's Ferry haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, just another place we need to check out when we go north again sometime, Kelly. Looking forward to it. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get several emails this past week. First, we have James. And he wrote, I just came across your podcast today. And the first one that I listened to was the Manger Hotel. I really enjoyed your podcast and reliving the things that happened to me in the Manger Hotel and also to my brother. My wife and I stayed a number of years ago on the third floor. We were in town for a medical conference I was attending. My granddaughter is now almost 13, so it had to have been eight or nine years ago because the sound that I heard sounded much like my granddaughter, who was would have been this age at that time or something. It was the sound of little feet running down the hallway and giggling that stopped right outside of our door. I got out of bed to see who was out there because I noted that I did not hear any other sounds in the hallway, such as a parent trying to get their child back into a room or the closing of doors or the sound of these feet running away in any direction as we were in a corner room. When I opened the door, no one was there. I called the front desk to see who had the child on the third floor in the old section that might be running around, not because I was angry, but because I was wondering if I had encountered something paranormal, which was my whole reason for staying at the Manger Hotel to begin with. I was quite excited when I was told by the front desk that there were no children checked into that old section of the hotel. 
Years later, my brother went to the Manger Hotel because of my experience, and he likes to pursue places with ghost stories. He and a security guard went down into the basement, and they had a voice recorder with them. And James has included an attachment here that I'm going to share with you guys that is an EVP of what they caught. So we'd listened to it, and we were like, wow, that sounds really creepy. And he added to it, he said, his brother and the guard in that basement didn't hear anything at the time. And that's why you're going to hear his brother say that if no one was going to interact with them, they were going to go to another floor. It wasn't until later listening to the recorder that they hear these voices. And James says, he says, which sounds to me a lot like a kid saying no. When I listened to the EVP, I just heard a lot of what sounded like weird, like ghostly kids making noise. I didn't just hear no. I thought I heard some kids, like multiple sounds. So we'll go ahead and play that for you guys and see what you think. All right, we're going to go to another floor. And we'll play it again. All right, we're going to go to another floor. And now I'm going to amplify it. All right, we're going to go to another floor. And one more time. Yeah, so I don't know what you guys think, but I don't know. I heard a lot of creepy sounds in there, like kids hollering and yelling. And if there were no kids anywhere around. Yeah, it definitely sounded corporal. I mean, it was just very, <laughs> very yeah. blatant to me. Yeah. So it's running around and playing, basically. Of course, we didn't record the EVP. So we just always leave that up to other people's interpretation. I can't vouch this for is it. true. Then I'm going to love saying this. We heard from Jane in Spain. <laughs> I love the fact that we have a listener in Spain. You're a poet and didn't know it. She'd written quite a few things, but the main part I wanted to share with everybody is I've never been interested in paranormal things until I moved to Spain and a few odd things happened. She said she wouldn't bore us with the details, but they did pique her interest in paranormal activity. I was loving people say, I won't bore you with the details. <laughs> I'm like, we want to hear the details. Tell us more. <laughs> and then she gave us some great ideas for some locations in England because she's originally from there. So we'll be bringing you a couple of those. And the cute thing is we're going to be welcoming her into the cemetery later on. And so she'd said, by the way, I wouldn't want a tombstone. When my time comes, I'm having a Viking funeral on the River Severn, I think is how you say it. <laughs> That's or Severn. awesome. Maybe it's Severn. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So, I mean, I just told her, you don't have to have a tombstone. We can do a, a Viking funeral for you with your body. <laughs> but we'll still give you a, a headstone with all your details because we want to have that for historical reference. Well, this is true. But if any of you want Mort to set you on fire and shoot you across the pond in the cemetery, you're more than welcome. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Mort? Mort likes fire. 
And then, Kelly, do you remember the episode featuring Flagstaff, Arizona? I do. And we had Susan, the tour guide, join us for that one. Well, she contacted us because she listened to the Haunted Cemetery 17, and she knows that we haven't done a Haunted Cemetery in Arizona yet, so she suggested one that she knew a little bit about. Excellent. So we'll be bringing that in a future one. It was very good to hear from Susan, and she said that their tours did really well this year. Oh, so glad to hear that. We're glad to hear that because we don't want our ghost tours to go away. Definitely not. We got an email from Amy. She says, hello, my name is Amy. I want to tell you ladies how much I love the show. I found you guys in March when the pandemic first hit, and I just wanted to thank you for giving me something to look forward to. That's great. Yay. And I'm glad because actually our downloads went down at first when the pandemic started because I think people weren't traveling, and so they were staying home and binging TV and stuff, and then I think people got bored with that, so then all of a sudden the podcast started doing really good again. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Definitely most people commuting are like our big target times I think when they're listening (laughs) exactly most people don't have the luxury I do of cleaning houses and you get to just listen to podcasts for 10 hours every day this is true I'm very spoiled I just listened to your episode on the Marshall house in Savannah and I thought I'd share my own experience with that amazing city a few years ago my husband and I visited and stayed at the Ballastone Inn It was a difficult time in our marriage and we were just beginning to reconcile after a two-year separation the third night we were there I was falling asleep and had the feeling of someone tucking me into bed and pulling the covers up under my chin as you would a child I remember feeling a warm, peaceful energy so much that I drifted off to sleep. I know it wasn't my husband because he snores, and I remember hearing him around the same time. It wasn't until the next morning when I went down to have breakfast and overheard a few other guests talking that it occurred to me I could have had a real experience. That same night before, the old-fashioned elevator in the building was acting strange, stopping on the wrong floors, etc. I then found out that the woman of the house who once resided there is said to ride the elevator in the night and check up on guests as if they are her children sleeping in their beds. Aw, that's precious. I was honored to think that she visited me, and I thought maybe since I was going through a difficult time, she felt my energy and knew I needed a little motherly love. Can't wait to go back. Very sweet. I love that. Love those stories. Thanks for sharing that, Amy. And then our final one is from Jeremy, and he was writing about our episode on the Ben Lomond Hotel in Ogden. He said, I worked in the kitchen at the Ben Lomond Hotel in 2017 and had several experiences there. I had a spirit attach itself to me. And I also heard my name called and no one would be around when I would hear that. Dang. Attachments. That's that's not, not something good. I'm looking forward to ever. <laughs> Don't want to take that home with you. Well, thanks, everybody, for sharing that. If you guys have experiences you want to share, you know where to write us. We'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. I want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery Raquel Garcia. We're going to be burying you under a chest tomb. And Jane Kennedy, we're going to be burying you under a chest tomb as well. Well, okay, we're going to shoot your body across the pond, (laughs) but we will be etching your name on the top of our chest tomb. And also thank you for your one-time donation that came in before that as well. We appreciate that. Thank you so much for supporting HGB. We could not do this podcast without you. Kelly... We have some arrows, a bow, and some gasoline here. <laughs> Are you prepping? I, I'd rather Should, just give them to Mort. <laughs> well, I, th- that's the problem. Do we give him the match and all this stuff and let him have at it? Well. Off to Valhalla with you, Jane. Woo. Look at the pretty fire in the sky. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.
Riley came in and cleaned up the chip that I dropped. You mean that atomic barbecue <laughs> one? <laughs> yes, the very spicy Pringle. Uh-oh. She may have a burning bunghole later, later today. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Riley. Well, you reap what you sow. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, I just love when we're doing this and you always flip your eyes around like, oh, I feel like I should say of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. <laughs> I feel like I should say it that way when you do that with your head. I was just being silly. We have fun, so. <laughs> this armory in the town of Harper's Ferry. I don't know what you're doing, babe. I'm just going to start reading your parts <laughs> okay. for you. I've got the throat rattle anyway. Go for it. <laughs> he ran several businesses and opened a post office. He ran. Well, I, didn't Post office. I didn't realize the line was going to end, even though I wrote the you damn wrote thing. <laughs> Both the North and South would take off, contr- take off, trade off. What's the difference? Vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> the flood of 1963, the flood of 1936 destroyed it for good. What numbers? Numbers. numbers. <laughs> Not 1963, 1936. The Confederates burned it in 18... <laughs> numbers. Before there were billiards on highways, advertise... Billiards? billiards? <laughs> People are paying billiards like, on highways? Playing That's, pool. That is really dangerous. <laughs> I'm quite the pool shark. Don't you know? <laughs> Kids, don't try that at home. <laughs> what do they use as the holes, Kelly? Don't. They don't run around shooting rocks and something. Oh, my word. Look, it's a pothole. Shoot a rock into the pothole. It's billiards <laughs> on the highway. All right, all right. Now, she had no doubt that there was a ghost in the bill. Be- the building. The b- 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 building. 